Welcome back, everyone, to a brand new episode of the Crypto and Muay Thai podcast. I'm your host, Chris Brookins. I'm super excited today to welcome our very special guest, Shilin Tang. He is the CIO of Ledger Prime and just an all-around nice guy. Uh, Ledger Prime is an investment fund that's based in the digital asset space that has more of a quantitative flow to it. Without further ado, let me introduce our special guest, Shilin. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I'm super excited to be able to talk to you again. It's been too long since everything that has gone on with, uh, with quarantine. I think it's been, it was November of 2019. The last time I got a chance to see you in person. Um, so it's a good time. Uh, it's a good, uh, you know, experience to be able to see your, see your face again and have a talk to you. So for, for those listening who might not know who you are, just feel free to give like a two minute, uh, synopsis just of your background and then also how you kind of found your your way into this wild world of digital assets yeah of course um, yeah I mean I, I maybe came um, into the financial markets a slightly convoluted uh, path you know not really a you know didn't really study finance or markets at all in, in college um, did chemical engineering uh, was more interested in the sciences um, but you know after, after a couple of years of, of you know uh, late nights in the lab, you know, definitely wasn't uh, wasn't a career path for me. And at the time, this is you know, pre two thousand eight, uh, Wall Street was you know on fire, the, the kind of hot space, and they were obviously hiring you know quants and, and individuals who didn't necessarily need to understand the markets, more just could program and understand the math. And so, uh, interned at a few places. Ultimately, ended up at the uh, Merrill Prop Trading Desk uh, on their high frequency trading and, and derivatives trading desk at the time. And um, that's primarily where I've been uh, most of my career, right? It's, it's on the algo trading uh, derivative side of, of things. And so um, my team and I currently uh, come from the traditional asset world. A few of us worked together back in the day and basically apply a lot of the same strategies to, uh, to Ledger Prime, um, which we started in, in 2017. Uh, Ledger Prime is basically a quantitative uh, uh, training firm. Um, we've made a, a conscientious effort to invest and focus on the derivative space and digital assets um, with knowledge that, you know, looking at traditional assets, uh, derivatives markets generally are always, you know, 10, 20, 50 X the size of spot markets. Right. And so I think if, you know, you think digital assets is going to be an asset class to stay for the long term, um, then absolutely, you know, we'll, we'll see the same, uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, market size for and an opportunity for, for derivatives, you know, in this space. Um, and then personally in, in, in crypto, um, you know, it was also always something that I kind of, uh, had that in the back of my mind, kind of. Uh, follow on the side when I was in traditional assets. Um, I think a lot of it stemmed from just a general financial crisis. And then uh, mostly back in like 2010, 2013, the European financial crisis, you know, specifically, right? Greece and the, uh, the Cyprus financial crisis, I think, you know, exposure of Cypriot banks to over leveraged local property companies, uh, Greek government debt crisis, and all of that ultimately led to, you know, the, 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 at the time, I think what was shocking at the time was, you know, depositors at bailed out Cyprus banks lost something like 50% or, or, uh, of their you know, savings, right? Exceeding a hundred thousand euros. And so that was like why opening, uh, eye opening for me. Um, and so, you know, crypto and Bitcoin specifically at the time being this asset that, you know, one, um, you know, what, what was, was outside of this traditional financial markets, but also an asset that could you know, go up hundreds of percent at a time. Um, it, it caught a lot of attention on, on, on Wall Street trading desks, right? And, and, and um, you know, for me, it was also always something that I dabbled and, and traded in um, personally. Um, and I think in 2017, when it became a, a bit more mainstream and, and markets were more liquid, and I thought I could actually allocate uh, a decent amount of capital to it. Um, I think it made sense for me to fully dive uh, into the space, you know, head on. Got you. That that makes sense. And and we kind of hear uh, a few similar stories, specifically whenever we're talking to some of like our more quantitative uh, focused investment guests. So you so like I said on a previous podcast, things typically whenever you start like in this particular market, there's a whole bunch of like hair, as we used to say in banking, that you don't necessarily know about until you're in the space. So obviously you guys or some of your team members you from a traditional asset class, you look at this space and you're trading it even on the side, maybe even develop some computer programs uh, to be able to trade it on the side, but now dedicating an entire investment fund to it and then looking to build out a more sophisticated system suited for institutions 
what were some of the learning curves that you guys went through in that initial phase and or still going through as like the market infrastructure, but also the market participants um, gradually evolve in this space? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think one is um, just the infrastructure itself, right? Uh, it was always something we took for granted. You know, I'd show up at a desk when I first graduated and all the data was there, all the data was clean. There were a ton of vendors you could purchase the data from. All the connectivity to the exchanges were well greased, well tested. You don't have to worry about connections going down all the time. Um, and you know, you, you just had functional, uh, 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 well-oiled you know, markets and machines and data, and you could just plug in your models and do these back tests and get the results, right? Um, you know, there's a saying in quantitative finance and data analysis where you're spending, you know, 80, 90% of the time just cleaning and working with data. Um, but that, that uh, you know, that, that applies to actually, you know, well uh, uh, greased and, and, and clean data. And now you're in crypto where at the time, at least back in 2017, um, you know, it was still kind of a very, very emerging asset class and all these platforms and exchanges and, there was really no clean data or providers. Um, and so we were having to do all this ourselves and we we're probably spending 99% of the time just trying to get the data and uh, actually clean it so we can actually you know, stick it in the models that we had from, from before. Um, and we're still kind of going through the growing pains of that, right? Um, I think it's just, you know, everything's so fractionalized, uh, especially for quantitative you know, finance, you, know, you need tons of data to train your models. Um, and not only is the data necessarily clean, but you're, you're going through all these regime shifts in crypto itself, right? The 2017 market, 2018, 2019, completely different. You know, this is an emerging asset class. It's almost like trading emerging, emerging assets, uh, I don't know, currencies, let's say. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the markets um, and the general macro environment has completely you know, shifted year after year the past few years. And I think that's ultimately affected the various regimes that we've seen. And so you know, just being very cognizant of that um, and not overfitting your data, um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, so, so we, we've taken and, um, you know, with, with that in our mind, we've thrown out a lot of the more complicated models and focused more on, um, you know, some of the easier strategies that honestly still work, right? Anything from like exchange ARB or basis trading, um, very, very simple things that, you know, obviously don't work in, in traditional assets. Um, still work you know pretty well in, in crypto um and so uh that that in itself um you know ha has been great and i think you know until the ultra large institutions you know get into the space um you know those strategies will still you know work quite well um and that's more just the general infrastructure build as opposed to trying to figure out the data and, and various you know regimes that we you know we inevitably go through uh in this market Got you. So talking about regimes, do you guys account for that in any way or try to model it? Um, so you, you said that you simplified your models um, given this sort of like rapidly changing regimes, which typically um, change quite violently, not necessarily with a whimper, so to speak. So is right. there any other ways that you guys look to manage that particular risk? Do you look at the fundamentals? Do you look at just the general macro environment? Mm -hmm. um, or do you just simply say like, all right, we're just going to keep, uh, you know, it just straight steak and potatoes with the very simple models um, and make sure that we're monitoring them based upon whenever we think or whenever we see that the regime might be adjusting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's this growing space, even traditional assets the past couple of years of, of quote unquote quantum mentals. Right. Um, hmm. and, and so we're trying to apply a little bit of that, just at least following the various events that do affect digital assets prices, right? Um, you know, everything from like mainnet launches to conferences to events um, that uh, a, a protocol or, or project announces that obviously affects, um, you know, the price, right? Or even like Fed announcements or Fed decisions for like the larger coins like Bitcoin, um, obviously at a high frequency uh, uh, time frame it, that does affect prices. Um, and so just taking all of that into account and modeling that um, and, and putting into the data as opposed to just looking at specifically numbers and prices previously, uh, I think has helped, um, you know, definitely a ton, right? Um, and all these things, you know, definitely continuously shift, right? I think like back in March and uh, slightly after that, all the macro and Fed announcements had huge, huge impacts. Um, and now it's, it's a little bit less so. Um, and obviously back in like 2018, none of that matters. Um, and, and so, um, 
being being aware of that and just tracking that um, while manual and perhaps less systematic, uh, it definitely has helped us a bit. Got you. That, that makes that makes sense. So you mentioned before, I guess like your general hypothesis is that um, if you're looking at this particular space or you're looking at traditional asset classes and you know seeing the size of the derivatives markets and or the opportunity within the derivatives markets, and you think that this asset class will be here for the long term, that you would subsequently um, see a similar growth there. What are some of the areas like that you're currently seeing or, or some of the areas of opportunity that you're currently seeing within the derivative space, knowing that that uh, infrastructure is even a bit more frontier, at least what is kind of regulated within the US from my particular perspective? And where do you potentially see some of those opportunities in the future as, it, as the infrastructure and or participants um, gradually grow in size and sophistication? Yeah, I mean it's that's a that's a very broad topic, but you know, tons of uh, uh, things we can touch on, right? You know, one is just um, the unregulated versus uh, uh, regulated space, right? Um, unregulated markets in derivatives uh, make up you know more than ninety percent of the market share, right? Um, and so right now, uh, that market, that capital, obviously controls a lot of the pricing you know, power, right? And and you know for good reason. Um, to, to get set up on an unregulated exchange is it's so much easier from KYC ML onboarding uh, versus a regulated entity like the, let's say the CME, right? You need an FCM relationship um, that, you know, effectively eliminates most of the retail um, or you can sign up for you know, Charles Schwab or Ameritrade account um, that eliminates a lot of, you know, offshore uh, retail accounts. And so you've eliminated like two of the larger segments in crypto, which is just, you know, retail and offshore. Um, and so uh, uh, if you look at pricing for these two exchanges, um, huge dislocations um, often um, in terms of, let's say, the basis and contango of futures curves uh, or even the options prices of, let's say, you know, tail options, right? Um, the cost of capital is, you know, orders of magnitude higher on a CME or regulated exchange versus, you know, let's say, Deribit or BitMEX. Um, and so you get these weird different price dislocations um, that you can take advantage of, you know, if, if you have a, a cheap, cheap, you know, cost of capital or, or your cost of capital is, is um, you know, better, right? Um, and, uh, you know, definitely it's, it's, it's a huge opportunity. Um, we have seen a, a bit of a pickup, I would say, the past couple of months in regulated exchanges um, and the volume, uh, such as the CME. Um, obviously, Paul Tudor-Jones announcing that he's getting to the space, um, you know, uh, his exposure is obviously in futures and not directly in the spot markets. Um, and then the option space, we've also had a, a new multi-billion dollar asset manager come to the space. And, and that's also on, just on the CME. Um, and that's had huge, huge impact as well um, on the markets there. Um, and so uh, that's created, you know, various differences in, in, in the prices and ball surfaces um, between the regulated and unregulated space. Um, and then the final thing that, that I want to touch about is, is structured products, right? Um, these products have existed in traditional assets for many, many years and, and even decades, right? A lot of them are, let's say, uh, they, they exist in the corporate space um, in traditional assets. So you have firms that want to hedge, you have firms that want yield, um, you know, especially in Asia, right? Yield generating products are, are huge uh, and immensely popular. Um, and I think, you know, crypto uh, is a natural extension of that. And so we've seen the past uh, few months and obviously more than a year of just these structured yield generating products um, packaged essentially in the back end as just vol selling or option selling. Um, and so that itself has has tripled, you know, as a market maker, right, you're making markets for these structured products on the back end, you have the hedge. And so, you know, market makers have to leak that flow onto the exchanges. And so that's put, um, you know, a, a damper on, on a lot of the implied ball surfaces, um, you know, in Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, and it's had a huge, huge impact just on the space. So I think, you know, a ton of opportunity in terms of new entrants, institutional investors into the space that will affect um, pricing and financial markets, but also just more complex, exotic structured products that, um, you know, definitely will have a, a huge you know, impact and, and opportunity as well. Got you. So, how do you guys look to look to take advantage, you know, uh, of that? What are uh, obviously, you know, anytime we're talking to quants, we know that there's going to be a certain layer of intellectual property that cannot be disclosed. But how, like in in a general framework, do you guys look to take advantage uh, of currently what's going on within the uh, derivatives markets and or what you kind of like see the path potentially going in the future? 
Yeah. Um, a lot of it is not like traditional markets where we just see this, these dislocations and we can just kind of trade it like without a thought, right? Um, so much of it is one, getting your investor base aligned. Um, so your cost of capital matches the exchanges and exposures that you want exposure to. Um, and the other is basically aligning your models to, to, to kind of you know, know the different flows and counterparties and when they're going to trade, when they're going to roll their exposure, when these structured products are going to get put on. Um, so taking that into account, which is a lot more, I would say, you know, subjective um, and kind of, you know, number crunching, et cetera. Um, you can have your models. Um, obviously, they'll always tell you something is cheap or rich or you should do this or you should do that. Um, but you have to have the, you know, you have to put that in the broader context of whether, uh, well, is, you know, 1% difference between the CME and Deribit um, enough um, in, in terms of a return difference uh, to justify the cost capital differences, right? And so all these things you're, you're taking into account. Uh, and so we've, we've made a huge, huge effort in making sure that our investors understand the markets that we want to get in, the returns that they're expecting from us. Um, and that we, you know, allocate the capital based on different platforms because there is no prime brokerage in this space, right? You can be long on one exchange, short on another, you have to post collateral on all these different exchanges, it becomes quite capital intensive. Um, your risks don't offset. Um, and so we're at, all, all, at the end of the day, like uh, so much of crypto is just managing your, your, your capital and balance sheet, um, something that you think a bit less of um, in traditional markets. Um, because you have, you know, prime broker relationship, you can offset your risk and everything else with the clearing houses and, and FCM and everything. Um, none of that exists in crypto at the moment. So, um, yeah, it, it's been surprising and, and, um, you know, we thought it would be pretty simple in terms of just, you know, our model is running and humming, but <laughs> at the end of the day, it's, it's just a lot of just, you know, relationships and more of the traditional I don't know, finance and banking that, um, I, I didn't think I would, you know, really need to think about. Got you. So you mentioned a couple or, or you mentioned a keyword there, you know, risk, you mentioned it a couple of times. So how do you think about risk in this general market? Obviously, what you're sort of like talking about alluding to there is counterparty risk. Um, so obviously, you've got to take that into consideration, especially within this particular market. And you mentioned prior talking about like regimes, given how quickly things tend to switch in this particular market and how violent they tend to be. Are there any other ways that you guys look at risk? Um, given your particular methodology and or uh, some of the particular nuances of this market? Yeah. Um, I mean, just, just having gone through uh, being in the space for a long time, right? The volatility in, in this market is astonishing and, and it's continues to surprise. I mean, even having traded through 2014 at Mt. Gox and then 2017. And uh, I mean, it, it, what happened in March surprised me and surprised, I think, a lot of people that have traded through the markets. We never expected that. Um, I mean, we, we could have expected that, but we didn't expect what really, I mean, when you're living through it, it's just completely different, right? And so I think just understanding that you know, leverage is a tool that can be used you know, both for good or bad. Um, and just making sure that um, you, know, you don't overexpose yourself to one particular counterparty or, or, or platform um, that whatever you think the worst can happen in terms of, you know, various VAR metrics or, or standard deviation metrics, um, you can be sure it can be, it, it could be, you know, go a lot worse. Right. Um, and I think, having the mentality of not maximizing upside, but really minimizing downside. Um, that, that's been our philosophy, right? It, it's kind of a market mutual fund, um, making sure that we really, really limit um, capital losses and downside and not really worrying about the upside as much um, has made our investors comfortable, really made, made ourselves, uh, our lives a lot easier, right? Um, and so always just, you know, cutting losses, making sure we're keeping risk tight, um, that, you know, our models, whatever we're running, um, worrying more about just the drawdowns um, and, you know, making sure that whatever, you know, illiquidity premium you're applying to these assets, you know, you're doubling or tripling that, right? Because, you know, in, in, a, in a market shock, crypto being this nascent asset class, um, liquidity just goes out the window. Um, so all these things we, we've learned a bit from traditional markets in 2008, flash crash, uh, all of these things. And, and so, um, you know, that, that's helped us a lot in, in terms of trading crypto. Gotcha. So how, so 
do you guys have specific systems in place like for said flash crashes? Because you said something that, you know, was, you know, sort of resonates with me. And I've mentioned it before that it was sort of articulated to me is liquidity is like an accordion. You know, it can just sit out there and you're like, okay, there's a lot of liquidity, but whenever mm -hmm. shit hits the fan, it quickly yeah. shrinks up and just sort of goes, goes away, which obviously we've seen several, several times this year, just, you know, in 2020 alone with March flash yep. crash being one of the most pronounced ones. So do you have additional systems in place or do you just always have your uh, risk parameters, you know, tight enough so that even if there's some massive slippage, you still know that your overall, uh, you know, VAR is uh, the X percentage, which is still well beneath, um, you know, what your max drawdown would be if you're talking to LPs. Yeah, um, I would say it's definitely more of the latter. Um, I think relying too much on models, um, especially in a chaotic and unpredictable in a market that lacks many, many years of data. I mean, even like in traditional assets in 2008, you know, the financial markets have been around forever and people have, you know, complex models and have tried to predict that. Um, and, and at the end of the day, no one really saw and expected what happened in 2008. And so to, to blindly follow models um, and think that you can predict, you know, what a worst possible outcome is, um, you know, I, I think is, is pretty naive. And so, you know, we have that in the back of the mind, um, we have our models, but just understanding that when things um, start to, to kind of go uh, towards the, the, the negative outcomes, um, just, just playing it uh, a lot safer than even our models kind of you know, dictate, um, you know, helps a ton. And I think no one's going to fault you for not making capital, um, but people are, are going to be quickly on you if you start to lose, um, you know, a, a lot, right? And so uh, that, that's something that's constantly evolving. But yeah, just, just always um, targeted towards the downside, you know, what various, you know, ball shocks um, look like. Um, and then I think the rest will, will take care of itself. That's a very like institutional mindset, how you're sort of talking, because like within this space, um, you know, it's very much driven by FOMO with this most recent sort of uptick in, in prices and everyone expecting the subsequent bull market to be driven by retail, which kind of flies in the face of the traditional narrative that we've been hearing since 2018. That is the institutions that are going to come in and take us to new heights, a la 2017. So that's a very traditional, or I should say a very institutional mindset, how you're talking about. So whenever you're thinking about capping downside, making sure that you're trimming off off the rough edges for your limited partners, do you just assume that the models over time will just make enough money to sort of justify the additional risk of being in this space? Or is it some kind of combination of, I trust the technology that we built and we believe that this market is overly skewed to the upside. So like the expected mm -hmm. return that we sort of extrapolated out maybe over yeah. the five to seven years, you know, we expected to cover well in excess of, of like the additional risks that we're taking on by just being participants mm -hmm. in this market. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think uh, the market is extremely inefficient in crypto, right? Um, uh, I think, you know, you have to have the mentality that you can't catch every single move. Um, but, you know, this is an extremely volatile asset class where, okay, just cause you don't catch like a thousand percent move, like, you know, even if you catch like 50% of that is more than enough for, for the average institutional investor, right? Um, and, and so knowing that in the back of our mind and knowing that there's so much um, alpha that can be captured, um, even if we catch a small sliver of it, uh, you know, most of our investors will be more than happy, right? Um, and so we don't need to like FOMO, we don't have to catch every single move. Um, there's so much upside, uh, not only in just price, but just in terms of the opportunities, uh, in terms of, you know, new asset classes, inefficiencies, uh, different regulatory regimes that create different prices. Um, just, just catching a small sliver of that um, will have astronomical you know, returns for, for many participants, right? And so the, the, the name of the game is to stay alive so that, you know, over time you can capture this. Um, it's not to try and, and hit it out of the park and blow it out of the park um, in one year. Um, and I think that's, you know, helped us immensely in terms of like 2018 where um, obviously, you know, we're going to catch all of the upside in 2017, but we, you know, we're still going to generate a positive return in 2018 and, um, you know, despite the market being down 60, 70%. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's for the long game. You know, we know how the game's played. Um, 
you know, we're not in it just for the next year or two, right? So. I really like that mindset and that philosophy, which is very difficult to stick to in all honesty, without a set of rules, discipline, but also some quantitative models running like automatically in the background to take to remove the human from behind it because it's extremely emotional whenever you see prices fly against you 20% yeah. or whenever you see prices go up 20, 30% and you're like, shit, I want in on that. Why wasn't I in on that? You know, so it's yeah. It's very difficult to control those uh, those emotions. So I yep. think that like general mindset and how you're talking is very very valuable. Not just to investment funds like yourself that obviously come from a traditional background, but also for some of the more like retail focused investors that might be listening here. Like the key is not to blow up. Again, this isn't investment advice, but you know, right. over the long time, it's like it, you know you do not want to blow up. So you, you mentioned one thing in there talking about there's always opportunities abound. And I totally agree. There's always something new. And I look at this space almost like a perpetual dot-com bubble. A lot of people think that, you know, it's going to wither away and Bitcoin and a handful of other maximalists will, will rule the roost. I, I don't personally see that happening, whether or not Bitcoin will be the top asset for forever and ever. I don't necessarily know, but I do know or strongly suspect that there will be always a soup du jour of digital assets like there's always a soup du jour of new startups looking to come up and displace the incumbents and or looking to attack new market verticals that are being created through technology so i don't think that's ever going to go anywhere and i think there's always going to be a retail component because the liquidity once you start straying outside of the top 10 top 20 is not going to be suitable enough for the large institutional investors whether or not they're just buying and holding or they're allocating to funds like myself or yours mm -hmm. that are looking mm -hmm. to move around a substantial amount of capital so there's always going to be opportunities over there with that being said where do you guys primarily play and look for areas of opportunity and i say that because you mentioned like new things are always cropping up i'd be remiss if we didn't talk about sort of like the big thing of 2020 so far which is defi every right, right. tom dick and harry out there is making a new defi protocol and it seems to be going up you know 100 percent, 200 percent, 300 percent on a daily yep. basis Yep. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you always have to look at the, the new markets, right? I mean, you can have a broader trend of like, you know, we think derivatives are, are, are going to grow in asset class, but you know, that, that takes time. It takes many years. Um, but in the short time frame, you have different pockets, right? In 2017, it was, you know, ICOs and smaller coins. Um, while we don't participate in a liquid uh, uh, private investments, you know, we can still participate in the inefficiency some of these coins, um, you know, have when they're trading on, you know, exchanges uh, uh, or, or publicly, right? And so there were a, a ton of dislocations in some of these smaller coins in 2017. And, you know, we're seeing the same thing in, in 2020, right, with, with these DeFi products and, and tokens. Um, and so we're still participating in that, but maybe a different flavor, right? Right. So instead of, you know, centralized exchanges, there's uh, decentralized exchanges. Um, and while there's huge, huge smart contract risk and risk in general with decentralized exchanges, I think, um, you know, carving out a small portion of your, of your capital, knowing what the risks are, having a conversation with the LPs, making sure they understand the risks, um, and then taking that small pool of capital and taking advantage of the you know, potential returns um, in these markets um, can generate significant alpha, right? And so, you know, we're doing a little bit of, you know, yield farming, we're doing a little bit of, you know, market making on some of these exchanges. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of the same game, just, just different flavor, right? I mean, you're still market making, you're still providing liquidity, it's like staking. Um, and uh, it really, it's, it's no different. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, you know, we're, we're actually, you know, we're definitely participating in, in this new opportunity. Got you. Got you. That, that makes, that makes sense. I mean, it, for your particular strategy and how you guys view the market, just like you said, it's just an additional um, sort of avenue to be able to participate in that. Assuming there's different risks and everything tied to that, given yield farming, you know, in theory is decentralized yep. versus, you know, market making on, on general exchanges as, as well. Yep. So, so do you guys do um, staking as well? Um, we, we do a little bit. I think more of just if you know if we have a token that we want to market make in where we have um, a general longer term you know momentum signal for, um, then 
you know, it makes sense to at least collect the yield um, that is being thrown off, let's say on a weekly basis, some of these tokens like synthetics, right? Um, it's just free money um, that can dampen the volatility uh, to a certain extent uh, of these tokens, you know, if you're holding it from a longer period, right? Um, and so for, I would say, longer term signals that are like trend following momentum, um, you know, to the extent that we can easily get in and out of these staking mechanisms and collecting the rewards, um, then it makes sense for us, you know, for us to uh, 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 at least collect, you know, quote unquote, the dividends um, that exists. Got you. Got you. Yeah, we do the same exact thing whenever we see, you know, our particular uh, longer term, which is a little bit loaded in, in this particular space, whenever we feel comfortable yep. uh, with the current trend and or we yep. like where the, the assets sitting, we do the same exact thing. Because just yep. like you said, uh, it's free, it's free money in theory. What yep. is your what's your like view of long term in this space? I know the that line continues to get yeah. pushed and, and pulled. But how do you guys generally view, you know, some of the short term mechanisms that you that you guys or the short term opportunities you look to take advantage of versus yeah. maybe you've got a thesis surrounded by momentum and or supported by some fundamental metrics that you look at and you're like, mm -hmm. all right, I want to hold this for X months or something. Yep. Yeah, I think um, short term can be extremely short, right? It can be seconds, um, sub-seconds, um, just arbitrage. Um, longer term, um, I would say, you know, it depends on the coin. I would say the more liquid a token is, the more comfortable we're holding it for longer periods because we know we can get out of it, you know, with a click of a finger and, and you know, uh, we can get out of it um, in any environment, right? With more of the liquid coins, um, obviously it takes a bit more time and so we'll never get a large position. And generally, we won't hold it, you know, perhaps for for that long of a period. And so, in terms of specific time frames, I would say that is more on the order of days to weeks. Um, and uh, uh, so that that's our our kind of definition of of long period, right? And so, obviously, that's still very very short compared to like a fundamental investor or a VC investor. Um, but again, that's that's just not you know what we're targeting, right? Um, you know, some of our other positions, maybe in options. Um, are a bit different. You know, options markets are still pretty liquid. Um, you know, we, we play the implied versus realized ARB, uh, maybe different ball surfaces. Obviously, those positions, we can't just get in and out easily. A lot of times we have to hold it to expiration, which can be months. Um, but those we feel a little bit more comfortable with um, just in terms of being able to hedge it with other options. Um, at the end of the day, it's still Bitcoin and Ethereum option for the vast, vast majority. And so they're, they're still fairly you know, liquid. So. Got you. That that makes sense, and and it's interesting too. Um, I guess it aligns kind of with your with your strategy and general philosophy of how you take advantage of this market. It's a little bit shorter um, than whenever we look at uh, long, you know, quote unquote, longer longer term investing. But also, you know, our our strategies differ a little bit. So this might be a little bit of a loaded question, given um, your market neutral fund, and you don't necessarily care which way the wind's blowing. How do you feel about the current? market environment so obviously we're we're sitting approximately what like 25 percent up in bitcoin and numerate you know uh, a lot more up in some of the other smaller coins not not like alt season but ethereum litecoin and and some of the other uh mm -hmm. larger top tens how do you feel about the general market environment given it has quickly went from you know malaise to exuberance again where everyone thinks this is uh, potentially the beginning of a multi-year bull market cycle. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it feels um, perhaps eerily similar to, to the, kind of the early days of 2017 or, or even 2016, right? Um, and so there is, you know, definitely some some um, enthusiasm, you know, bubbling. Um, DeFi maybe replaces ICOs this time around. Things are pretty you know, look pretty healthy um, in terms of the large caps like Bitcoin, Ethereum, at least. Um, and so for us, you know, we are starting definitely to see a pickup in volatility, seeing um, pockets during this volatility of, of similar things that have happened in, in, in 2017, um, you know, right? Just complete dislocations in price. Um, this time around, though, um, there's a lot more tools at our disposal, right? There's an actually a very robust and active derivatives market. Um, everything from futures, perpetuals, options, which a lot of times didn't exist as much. Um, back then. And so you have new opportunities like basis trading and uh, Volar that were deploying versus things that we couldn't deploy as actively in, in 2017. 
Um, so that, that's that's great, right? And, and you know, volatility ebbs and flows. Um, wouldn't be shocked at all if volatility was even greater than in 2017. Um, you know, this time around during this time, you know, this this bull market. Um, especially if people are, you know, are throwing out numbers like 50,000 or 100,000 Bitcoin price targets, um, you know, absolutely, you know, in, in a supply constraint market like Bitcoin, any other commodities, um, you know, volatility tends to blow off. Um, and so knowing that uh, uh, that can exist, uh, but also being cognizant of the fact that there's so many more instruments um, at our disposal um, this time around. Um, yeah, it's, it's extremely exciting for us. Got you. That that makes that makes sense. I, I think from my particular perspective, I, I tend to agree with with you that I see I see similarities in kind of how the market is is structuring and, and shaping up. Not just from a macro perspective, which everyone's sort of pounding on the table uh, in terms of just the U.S. dollar. It's like there's there's one way that policymakers are looking to push the dollar, and given you know Bitcoin is denominated in it, then it, it's going to you know it's going to increase uh, increase in, in in prices. But also yep. uh, looking at technicals too. The technicals look very much there, and we're getting mm-hmm. to that point where, uh, for better or worse, the FOMO is starting to set in for retail, not just retail, but also, you know, hearing from some fiduciaries, you know, small level fiduciaries. um, And I can just imagine that that will eventually matriculate over to um, some of the institutions as well. Mm -hmm. I've long held that um, one of the next big sort of uh, almost like dam breaking dollars that could flow into this space is whenever uh, larger institutions that manage retirement funds realize, or they have their day of reckoning, uh, for their unfunded liabilities and they're like, Oh crap, like we've got to fill this gap. I've got 10, 20, 30% of my workforce retiring next year. It's like, all right, right. How, how do we fill this? And you just look again, strictly at an expected return uh, profile over the past, what, five years, seven years. And that's going to point you squarely, um, at digital assets. So there's right. still going to be a little bit of hair, um, in allocating to that, but there's more and more funds that are sort of removing that so that it fits within their mandate, like yourself, um, yep. and also institutional type package products more along the line of what Grayscale um, says mm-hmm. as well. So I still think that that could be a potential input where like one, two, three percent uh, of their portfolio could gradually flow in there because they're like, this is a good yep. way to quickly fill. Um, the unfunded liabilities that, right. that sort of just been cropping up, you know, for, for decades at this particular point. Yep. You know, especially as more um, quote unquote larger names get into the space, right? Like Paul Tudor Jones and more institutions that people recognize. Um, it, it takes a little bit away of the, the quote unquote you know, career risk, um, you know, from the space in terms of just allocating to it. Right? I think a lot of the times people um, don't necessarily uh, um, not believe in, in, in crypto or Bitcoin or the expected returns, it's more of just, well, um, you know, if you do allocate it, um, there's a bit of risk from a institutional name and personal career risk. Um, And so getting over that hurdle um, as more larger names get into the space, well, then it takes a little bit of the edge off. uh, People feel a little bit more comfortable um, actually kind of following along, right? Um, And I think that that would do a, a great deal of, you know, adoption as well. That makes sense. Uh, I think that is one of the, that's one of the more interesting uh, sort of questions like outliers that sort of over that sort of just hang on this market. Do you think for the foreseeable future that retail FOMO will continue to, will continue to drive and like flow in, especially as again, like some of the more not flavorful, but more popular um, type assets like DeFi continue to drive additional interest in the market. But then obviously now Bitcoin is starting to get back in that mix as well. Yep. Yeah. I mean, retail FOMO and, and just retail, you know, fever is, is something that um, exists in all asset classes, exists in the beginning of time. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't continue to exist in, in crypto, right? Any, anything that can go up 20, 50, hundred percent, in a day, in a week, um, it is going to attract uh, uh, retail investors, right? Um, especially now, as more and more uh, uh, pipes and on on off, um, you know, uh, uh, ramps are being built to crypto. Um, everything from Robinhood to PayPal to Revolut and, and all these different platforms that will enable, um, 
retail you know uh, uh, investors and, and to to get in and out of crypto easier um it's just going to make it so much easier for them to, to kind of participate in, in these markets right um and so absolutely i think um in the near term the long term retail is going to be a huge huge driver of it um especially for for some of the smaller coins and newer uh sub sectors right like DeFi, because um you know, the larger institutions aren't going to participate in these anytime soon, right? They're going to participate in Bitcoin, maybe Ethereum, um, but uh, in some of the smaller coins, I think it's absolutely going to be, you know, dominated still by retail. Got you. Yeah, I think there's always going to be a, a sub-segment of it um, that is that is always going to be dominated like retail, just given, again, like we talked about, some of the liquidity um, issues and constraints there as well. Um, so do you... Do you have a, a primary, I know you guys are, are market neutral, but is there like a thesis that you guys have in the back of your mind for where you see 2020 moving to and or it like and pushing in to 2021 as well that you're like, all right, we're trying to position our, ourselves in this particular way because we think it, it seems like this early stage narrative is playing yeah. out. So we want to be, we want to make sure that we're positioned um, appropriately to be able to take advantage of that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, similar to just, you know, what I mentioned before and similar mindset we have since we launched the firm is basically that derivatives are going to be massive and orders of magnitude larger than, you know, spot markets um, or, or other assets, you know, within the space, right? Um, we're starting to finally see a ton of options uh, adoption. Um, there's going to be new exchanges popping up this quarter, next quarter. Um, we're seeing kind of the education permeate through the space in terms of just getting you know, uh, uh, retail customers and institutions comfortable with what options and, and digital assets can actually be used for. Um, and we're just seeing a lot more like corporates um, in the space from lenders to miners um, that are, you know, starting to use options uh, a lot more uh, as a way to kind of minimize the volatility of the balance sheets. Um, and so for us, you know, it's like the opportunity set us less about, oh, do I think you know, Aave or synthetics are going to go up, you know, 100% price, um, more of just position ourselves in what areas are going to be the fastest growing you know, segments, um, what are the instruments that we can use to participate uh, in these segments, um, and, you know, afterwards kind of taking advantage of that. And, and so for us, you know, just, um, you know, saying it again, it's, it's basically just, you know, we really think derivatives and even crypto native derivatives, right? Like hash rate derivatives, something that doesn't exist in traditional assets, um, I think could be a big opportunity. Um, things that only exist um, because of the way that digital assets are, um, I think could be huge, right? We don't simply just have to copy and paste, like, you know, create another VIX for, for crypto, which, you know, while I think it, 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 it will be immensely popular, um, I think there's so many things in digital assets that can only exist in, in the digital asset space. Um, and I think we're going to, you know, start to see derivatives products built, you know, for that. Um, and that's very, it, 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 extremely exciting. Do you think the, obviously the, the first layer is going to be more centralized, but do you think eventually the, the grand vision of decentralized finance, DeFi will eventually take um, shape and derivatives will move there as well? So like in theory, I love the idea of DeFi, but in practice, I still think it's a long way to actually go yeah. to be able to meet a real world need, but also do it in a reliable, scalable and secure way. So, right. you know, that's a little bit loaded given I've just sort of put my, my, my thoughts out on the paper there. But yeah. how do you feel about, you know, that in terms of derivatives for DeFi at its current stance? And do you eventually, do you think that it will eventually get um, to that particular space? Or do you think there'll always be the, the bulk of the liquidity will be on centralized um, exchanges? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the way I draw parallels for that is basically um, similar to generally how institutions and retail view digital assets in general, right? And so uh, it's going to take a lot of, lot, I mean, it's already taken a ton of time for the institutions to get comfortable with Bitcoin. Um, it's going to take just as much time, if not more, for them to get comfortable with actually transacting on a decentralized exchange, right? And at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, if they just want Bitcoin exposure or digital asset exposure, they can get it from centralized exchanges or even derivative of centralized exchanges like futures as opposed to physical Bitcoin, right? So, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a long time and maybe it never even happened that large, large traditional institutions um, ever get comfortable with, with DeFi um, because they, they, there's no product market fit 
yet, right? Uh, but I think that for retail, right? Um, just look at what's been happening on, on Uniswap or OneInch and on these various DeFi uh, uh, platforms and decentralized exchanges, um, volume has been spiking in the past couple of months. And so, you know, for the average retail uh, user, they're getting, you know, up speed very, very quickly. They're getting very, very comfortable um, trading and transacting on these exchange exchanges. And I actually think, um, yeah, I think it's going to surprise actually how quickly um, you know, some of these platforms actually start to eat into the market share of, of centralized exchanges, right? And then for us that are, you know, while we're quote unquote uh, a fund and institutional, we're not, you know, uh, uh, an institution in the traditional sense. And so we're going to go where the opportunity is, we're going to go where the volume is, um, as the infrastructure gets built up and we feel a lot more comfortable deploying more capital, um, we'll be very, very quick um, to deploy capital on these decentralized, um, you know, and DeFi platforms, right? And so if that's where retail wants to go, then we'll follow um, because that's where the opportunity is. And I think um, there'll be a vicious cycle by then of just more users, more funds and, and trading shops like us, which will grow the liquidity and grow the infrastructure. Um, so I actually, and I'm quite positive on, on um, you know, how the space will evolve. Interesting, interesting. Do you think that, what do you have like a specific time, obviously, you know, forecasts are, are notoriously yeah. shit, but do you think that, you know, that's, that could happen as quickly as, is 2021? I think, I think so. Um, yeah. I mean, it depends on what you deem a, you know, quote unquote successes, but um, I, I think that, you know, right now even DeFi in certain days have taken four or 5% of the market share of centralized exchanges. Uh, maybe you think that, I don't know, 20% of market share is you know, extremely successful. Um, Absolutely right. I, I think um, it could uh, by 2021. Um, I think the big, big question mark eventually is what regulators view uh, DeFi transactions as. Um, I think in the U.S., you know, the SEC and CFTC has essentially, uh, not directly said, but um, at least indirectly uh, uh, held the belief that you know DeFi uh, uh, or decentralized you know, transactions on decentralized exchanges are essentially off exchange swaps, right? And that's a big um, gray area uh, uh, in, in, in terms of um, general financial transactions. Um, all that needs to be reported. All of, obviously, none of that is being reported currently. Um, so I think the regulators will get ahead of it quicker than they did with the ICO market. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what they ultimately decide on in, in, in terms of this DeFi market, um, how they view it, how they want to regulate it. Um, but Overall, um, absolutely, I, I think, you know, we can see things uh, uh, pick up steam, you know, in, extremely quickly, definitely by 2021. Interesting. And then you think, uh, so do you guys don't participate on any decentralized exchanges and or aggregators, like you're sort of talking about with one inch and, and Paraswap and stuff like that? Uh, we, we do. We, we, okay. we trade on one, we use one inch. Um, we have our own private MetaMask wallets. Uh, we participate on Curve and, and Balancer and, and Compound, um, but very, very small, right? Um, just the amount of capital where uh, we feel comfortable if there's ever, after, ever actually like a smart contract risk or a hack or anything. Um, more to learn about the opportunity so that if it grows and scales and becomes more secure, we know exactly what we're doing and we know exactly how to deploy the capital you know, smartly and, and efficiently. Interesting. I find that really, really interesting and also incredibly smart as well. So we, you know, for the fund, we don't, we don't necessarily participate um, just yet, but like personally, I participated in there as an additional sort of like foray into that where it's like, okay, if this gets to the point where it makes sense for us to do this for the fund, then mm -hmm. our learning curve is, is far shorter. Do you look at DYDX, like the derivatives exchange uh, built on Ethereum as well? We've looked at a few of them like that, open. Um, those are a bit tough, I would say, because with derivatives, uh, the edge cases, um, the permutations are infinitely more complex. Um, we're a bit more hesitant on it because just, just coming from a derivatives background, we understand how difficult it is even to risk manage um, for an exchange to risk manage a product like that, even on a centralized exchange, right? Um, a lot of times also like an like open, you know, you need a, a, a fully collateralized contract uh, for better or worse. And so it doesn't become, it's not very capital efficient for a market maker to use an exchange that's fully collateralized. Um, so you have the, the, the cost of capital, you have the complexities and the risks and the smart contract risks 
Um, so for derivatives on a decentralized exchange, I think will be um, perhaps a little bit slower in, in terms of deploying capital versus just the general um, you know, spot markets. Gotcha. That, that makes sense. And, and you guys have the experience to be able to sort of handicap that in a, in a way. And obviously with, uh, with open, with the recent hack, there's, there's right. an additional layer of, of technical, like of technical risk that, yep. you know, I personally don't understand because I don't have a technical background, but I've, you know, speaking to people that do have that background, there's still a lot of rough edges there in terms of technical risk, yeah. you know, that you're sort of like alluding to and, and was most recently um, exploited with open. Yep. Absolutely. So before we before we wrap up here, is there anything um, that you guys have going on in in your world that you want to make sure that the listeners or the viewers um, know about before we wrap up? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, something that we we've always um, ascribed to is just being very very open, um, kind of crowdsourcing ideas and, and teams and individuals and speaking. You know, that, that's how we we met you, right? Um, you know. Chris is um, something that we do is basically, you know, we're, we're not um, kind of a closed off fund. Um, what we do is, you know, we, we um, have built the infrastructure, the, the, the back testing, research data, et cetera, execution. Uh, and basically we work with teams and, and individuals who have good ideas, uh, who have existing strategies, or even, you know, ideas that they think can become a strategy. Um, and we're more than willing to provide the infrastructure and, and um, a, a data and, and, and even capital um, you know, for you to test your, your strategies and ideas out on, right? And so there's a, you know, a team out there that's, that's listening or, um, you know, I think they have, you know, interesting idea or just want to bounce off certain things with us, you know, we're more than happy to take the call and, and see if, um, you know, there's a good fit. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I can attest, um, you know, having having a relationship with with you guys um in some framework capacity for, I don't know, we're like pushing um, a year now. The There are, that's what's great about this space um, is that it's quite collaborative. It's not necessarily so cutthroat like where in traditional right. markets, it's, you know, it's very much along that side. We're still in the space where we're all kind of just figuring it out given how early stage we are here. Yep. So the collaboration um, is really, really positive and really, really powerful. And you, Ledger Prime, I would say, was one of the first ones that I came across where they were open and, and out there to advertise. So I, I, I definitely concur with that as well. If there's any teams out there um, that, are, that are listening, uh, you know, Sheeling's a great guy and he, he's definitely more than willing uh, to have a conversation. So with that, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking a little bit out of your day to come on and yeah, of course. talk about, you know, all this general fun stuff or hopefully stuff that we find fun or our viewers find fun as well. Um, I can't wait to have you uh, back on the podcast as well in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Um, again, you know, very uh, appreciated and thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you next time on a new episode of the Crypto Muay Thai Podcast.